Hello everyone, welcome to today's edition of Disability Inc. We are so glad you could join us as we discuss obtaining high quality special education in an imperfect world. I am Pana Poto, a senior family educator at Include NYC. I'm also the parent of two children, both have IEPs. Here with me is Aroma P. Reynolds, educational lawyer and mother of three, and former special education settlements and claims attorney at the New York City Department of Education. Welcome, Aroma. Thanks for joining us today. Please tell us a little bit about yourself. Thank you. Thank you so much to Include NYC, to um, Disability Inc., and of course, you, Pana, for giving me this opportunity. Um, so as Pana said, my name is Arma M.P. Reynolds. I'm a special education attorney. I've been practicing uh, for about 11 years. I started out working as a staff attorney for Bronx Legal Services back in 2008. And there I represented uh, low-income parents and their children who had disabilities. I attended IEP meetings. I uh, represented them in impartial hearings and, and also in appeals. I, um, I then worked for the New York City Department of Education. There is a, um, a division within the special education unit devoted to settling claims um, related to um, uh, denials of a free and appropriate public education. Um, so I did that until I moved to Long Island where I worked for uh, Gersio and Gersio as a senior associate. That is a law firm that represents several school districts out on Long Island. And most recently, before um, starting uh, my own practice, I was the director of legal services at Gersh Academy, which is a private school for children on the autism spectrum. Um, my private practice, MSR Legal and Consulting Services, is um, a law firm that's dedicated to uh, special education law and children's advocacy. So thank you again for having me. You're very welcome. Um, this topic is a really um, interesting one, overcoming barriers to obtaining high-quality special education. And I just want to let the listeners know that today we're going to be diving into exploring the impact of race, culture, and socioeconomic status on special education and the racial disparities in identification and discipline. Um, so, Aroma, I know you wrote a paper on overcoming barriers to obtaining high-quality special education. Can you tell us a little bit about the motivation behind choosing this topic and what discovery surprised you as you were researching the information? Yes, absolutely. So I've always been intrigued by the achievement gap, the, the disparities in educational outcomes amongst uh, children of various races. And, and that has always been um, something that stuck with me throughout the years in my special education practice. And my hope as a special education attorney is to um, use the law and to use advocacy to bridge that gap, at least for uh, special needs children, because as the research um, shows that there are also achievement gaps, uh, not just for general education students, but also for um, children with special needs. Um, so I did give a presentation uh, in mid-August, and it focused on the barriers to accessing a high-quality um, special education. And I used the term high-quality because I didn't want to just um, focus on um, any uh, type of special education. I really wanted 
um, to talk about the importance of making sure that the um, special education is of a high quality so that it is meaningful and beneficial to the child and, and, and not just um, uh, special education on its, on its face, that it's actually um, tailored to the child's needs. So this brings me to um, you know, the process of gathering the research. Uh, through my private practice over the summer, I had two college student interns based at a, a pediatric clinic in Richmond Hill, Queens, which is a um, predominantly um, Spanish-speaking and, and immigrant community mm -hmm. um, who tend to um, rely on, on public uh, benefits for um, their household income. And the purpose of placing the interns there was to create an information booth or an information table um, about dispensing information about special education rights. There were brochures in both English and Spanish. Um, one of the interns was bilingual um, in English and Spanish herself. And, um, and there was also an opportunity for parents to, to um, fill out a questionnaire about whether they had any um, particular issues um, regarding their child's special needs. Um, and so what I found striking in, during the six-week period was that it was so difficult to um, have parents um, in, engage with us at the information table uh, to take a brochure. We actually found we needed to um, go up to each family or each parent individually mm -hmm. and um, explain to them the purpose of the information booth and, and actually physically hand them the, um, the brochure and the flyer rather than, um, you know, expecting them to, to come themselves to, to the booth. Uh, so, you know, this is all anecdotal, but our interns attributed what appeared to be this resistance from the families to the stigma of special needs in, in this particular community and, and um, one of the interns happened to be a member of this, um, the, the, the community where the pediatric clinic was based. And there, there is a, a, a history and um, as we later found facts that actually, you know, tend to support why there is a, a stigma um, of special education um, in certain communities. Yeah. And, um, I would say, I mean, I think the stigma is very real. We encounter that a lot here at Include NYC, depending on um, some of the neighborhoods that we go in. Some parents may be a little bit resistant to what we're coming to discuss. Like I remember one time I did a workshop and the whole site changed the name of the workshop to make it more general so it wouldn't have anything that had special needs or special education in it because she thought she would get a better turnout that way. So wow. I realized, yes, I realized that um, there is a lot of stigma, and we're going to go into stigma a little bit later. But for now, um, I would really like you to share a little bit about some of the statistics that you discovered and while you were researching your paper. Sure, absolutely, and I just want to tell the audience that I do have um, the actual research uh, papers and the citations that these statistics that I'm going to um, quickly go through are based off of. I just didn't want to spend too much time because we do have a limited um, time for this program and, and a lot to cover, so that information um, you know, can be uh, um, received through uh, contacting Include NYC. Um, in looking at... Uh, racial disparities, for example, <clears throat> from the 15-16 school year that, um, for example, autism um, classification, 
classifications happen to be highest amongst Asian students. Um, intellectual disability classifications were highest for students who are, who are black or African American. And also that um, specific learning disabilities, that classification was higher for uh, students who um, were designated as Pacific Islanders. But what became more disturbing um, to, to us and the, my interns and I in, in conducting this research is that um, the black children are 2.7 times more likely to be um, identified as having an intellectual disability. So intellectual disability is um, a classification that um, is meant to capture uh, children that have a cognitive uh, Im impairment, um, typically defined by scores on a, um, an IQ uh, assessment. Um, black children are also 2.3 times more likely to be identified as having um, an emotional disturbance or being classified with that um, emotional, under that mo emotional disturbance category. And then um, further, and this, uh, this is from a journal that looked at inequities and in special education and discipline in, in 2014. Um, black students are 1.6 times more likely to be served in restrictive environments than white students with disabilities. And restrictive um, uh, tends to focus on the um, amount of time a child would get to um, interact in the school environment with typically developing peers. And so the more restrictive the setting is, the less likely the child is able to um, be able to engage with um, typically developing children. Um, so these uh, statistics are, are indeed very uh, disturbing and um, they, they are a part of this phenomenon that's known as the school to prison pipeline. I've yeah. also heard um, some agencies um, call it the cr um, cradle to prison pipeline because um, of how deeply rooted these um, inequities are in our um, justice system. So there is a striking correlation between suspension rates of black students with disabilities and their risk for involvement in the juvenile justice system. So it's a a very, very um, stark re, um, relationship and correlation between those two um, things. And um, unfortunately, not surprisingly, um, black male students are at a significant risk of suspensions compared to their male peers from other racial groups. So in data um, taken from this journal in 2014, the um, national suspension risk by race listed black students at 20%, uh, whereas the next, um, the next largest percentage was 13% for Native American students. Um, so black males, far their, that suspension rates and, and that risk far exceeded their peers. Um, and, and similarly for black female students, um, their suspension risk by race, um, it's 12%. And then the next highest um, percentage is also Native American students at seven. So there is um, you know, a, a huge disparity there. Um, and, and it goes across um, the board with 
in, in comparing black students to students of, of other races, including um, Latino and white and, and Asian. So going back to um, the frequency of how um, black students are uh, identified as having an emotional disturbance, there's also a correlation between that emotional disturbance classification mm -hmm and suspension rates. So um, student, the suspension rates for students with emotional disturbance um, classifications, it's nearly 33%. And then the next highest suspension rate is 14%. Um, right. So it's a, it's a huge um, disc discrepancy yeah. and one that um, really gives us pause to you know, think about how, the impact of this and, and how we can address the, the disparity. And I know you brought up uh, um, the school to prison pipeline, and I know that you know in New York City, I was reading an article um, on Chalkbeat, and it stated that um, forty-six percent of the suspensions are of Black students, whereas Black students only make up twenty-six percent, um, you know, of the student body. And our new chancellor. Richard Carranza, when he came in, one of his big push is to desegregate and have more diversity and, you know, less racial disparity in how a lot of these um, policies are being implemented. And I know that this past September, um, the discipline code has been finally been um, updated. It's really interesting. It will be interesting to see how that carries out if the suspension numbers are reduced. Um, and then another thing that I thought was interesting mm -hmm. was that, you know, um, the Trump administration has decided to drop their appeal of the special education um, lawsuit. You guys may know that um, under IDEA, states are required to identify school districts with high rates of students from specific racial um, and ethnic groups who have disabilities, who are placed in restrictive settings or who are subject to discipline. Um, but the way how this was implemented had been, um, it hadn't been done in a fair way. And when President Obama was in office, he wanted to establish more of a national standard. And so, you know, when the Trump administration came in, they decided to hold off <laughs> for two years. So I'm just glad that they've decided to um, drop their appeal. But I'm waiting to see how it's going to implement because a lot of this stuff, it trickles down from the federal level to the state level to the local level. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I think you've brought up so many, you know, important points and, you know, to take the, the, st the statistic about the, um, the, the, um, the proportion of black students yeah. in the overall population in the right. city, and then comparing that to to the rates of suspension, that's really really striking to mm -hmm. think that you know um, black students only are you know making they're they're not the majority they're you know approximately twenty something percent, yeah. and and yet their rate in the suspension system is mm -hmm. is more than double that. Right. Uh, so I think when we even like take a look at these statistics from from that lens of um, it, it's really even more, um, you know, striking and, and disturbing. And I was really glad to hear about, um, you know, updates and, and the revamping of the, um, the discipline code in the city. And I, I found it um, 
you know, interesting to, because I, when I first started practicing special education law in the Bronx, you know, about, you know, 10 or 11 years ago, um, there was a, 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 a campaign or a coalition that was really focused on making the, um, the city's discipline code for students more progressive right. um, f- to, to address the um, sort of implicit biases that may uh, exist in the school system and, and to make sure that discipline is um, actually a, a teachable moment right. rather than punitive because, of course, we see from these statistics that, um, you know, the punitive nature, it disproportionately impacts um, students of um, of African-American or African descent and also um, is correlated to the um, school prison pipeline and, right. and their involvement in the juvenile justice system. So, you know, when I found out that this was just taking um, place, apparently right. this school year, I'm like, oh my goodness, that <laughs> it, it, it really brings into focus um, the task that we have ahead of us, that yeah. it, it took nearly a, a decade to kind of from, from when I started mm-hmm. practicing to get to the point where we do have a, um, a revised um, discipline code. And, you know, it just tells us how much more work there yeah. is to, to be done. And, and mm-hmm. I agree with you that, um, you know, it'll be interesting to see how this, um, from the federal perspective, um, how that trickles down and how states, um, you know, decide to, uh, to, 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 um, to use this, this lawsuit that has been dropped and, yeah. and hopefully, um, you know, address these issues more, more directly and, and, um, and in a, in a timely manner. So when we think about all of this and we think about this statistics, what do you think is the reason behind the numbers being so high for black and brown students? Right. Well, I, um, I, I do have a social science degree, but I, I am not um, uh, a social scientist by any means. But I can, I can just say from my, my experience and, and my understanding is that there are um, you know, everyone, everyone in, in the um, school system, you know, parents and educators, uh, administrators alike, are humans, and they do come with their um, perspectives that mm-hmm. um, can be based on um, stereotypes and um, based off of um, probably institutionalized uh, racism, something that's been so um, embedded in the structure mm-hmm. of our society that it's it may not even you know come to the forefront of right. people's minds when they're um, making decisions about um, the behavior that takes place um, or or decisions about um, a child's special needs and mm-hmm. and, and interpreting uh, results of, of evaluation. So I I, I do think that um, it's something because it can be so unconscious that it, it is something that we do need to talk about and, right. and bring to the forefront mm-hmm. and, and address head on. That that would be my opinion. Okay. So can you talk a little bit about um, delays in referrals for evaluations and what impact that can have on a child? Yes, absolutely. So having done this work in representing families um, for, for several years, and even when I was on the school district side and, and seeing um, the results of a child not receiving the proper, um, you know, intervention earlier enough, 
it's um, it it's it became pretty clear to me that the the sooner, the earlier that the child can be evaluated, the sooner that um, a, a clinician can identify what those ch um, the special needs are for a particular mm -hmm. child, the sooner the child can receive the appropriate services and classroom setting and programming and have the best um, likelihood of success in school and beyond school. And so things like um, access to health care can impact um, very young children, infants and toddlers, and um, where the parents may not know that their child is not meeting certain developmental milestones. And so, um, you know, time goes really quickly. And by the time the parents may realize that there is an issue, the child may have already aged out of the, mm -hmm. you know, state early intervention program. And then there's also, um, you know, committee on preschool special education. So what we, um, what research shows and what I can say from my perspective as an advocate, an attorney who has um, uh, represented families who have um, gotten what the child needs early on and those who had been um, neglected either by the system um, because they were not um, aware of their rights, that um, it's, it, it, it is troubling. It is troubling to um, you know, see a child who's reached the age of 17 um, with average cognitive ability who hasn't, who can't read beyond a third grade level. And, and those are the kind of stories with that tug at your heartstring that, you know, what if, what if, um, you know, that child had, had received the proper services early on and, and what, how different this outcome would, would be. Yeah. And I think early intervention is so important. Like I know from my son, um, he started early intervention at two, but I didn't really have a frame of reference as to what a delay looked like or what autism looked like. I just knew that he wasn't really speaking. He was kind of babbling compared to other kids his age. And so his pediatrician referred us to early intervention. He was getting speech and special instruction, but autism didn't come into the picture until he was four. Um, and that was when he was going through his transition to kindergarten. But, you know, and I compare that experience with my daughter, because of my experience with my son, I was watching her like a hawk. <laughs> so, you know, she, she, I referred her for early intervention the first time. She didn't qualify for it. I waited, you know, I think it was about two, two, three months later, I, I referred her again and then she was found eligible. And it's not because I was trying to find something wrong with her. It's because I knew I was seeing that she wasn't meeting certain milestones and I knew that she needed the help. So I think that early detec detection and that early intervention is so important. But sometimes a lot of parents just don't know what to ask for. And then even when they go through the process, there are a lot of delays. So sometimes you can make the referral, but just finding the provider to come and do the evaluation and then if you are if the child is bilingual it's even harder here in new york city to find someone that can do those bilingual evaluations right right yeah. and you know i bring up because um pana you called this um program we're doing today you know special education in an imperfect world and you've yeah. brought up you know that there there are a lot of a lot of rights that parents have mm -hmm. and um due process rights and, and those come with 
the reality of timelines mm-hmm. and the reality of, of finding the right um, providers or finding a provider who can um, implement the plan, the program, whether it's an individualized family service plan, IFSP through early intervention, or an IEP um, for school-aged um preschool and school-age children, it, it, it is an imperfect process. Yes. <laughs> However, it, it does, it, it's ripe with um, a, a, a lot of potential. And right. my goal has always been to kind of use what the, um, the framework of the IDEA was um, meant to, to be to, um, to, to help you know, families who are facing barriers. And, and another point, um, you mentioned you're with your son, your first child, yeah. and 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 not really having a, a, a frame of reference to mm-hmm. what um, would be considered a developmental delay, um, or or whether he was meeting the um, the the milestones, is that I, I did come across research. It wasn't um, it wasn't included in the the program that I um, I gave over the summer, but there is a disparity between um, you know children, black children mm-hmm. that present with um, symptoms of autism right. and and receiving that diagnosis um, versus their white counterparts. So, uh, for example, um, you know, let's say two children, one black, one white, it, the research has showed that if they're both um, presenting similar um, symptoms of autism, that the white child is more likely to be um, diagnosed, given that diagnosis, and provided with um, the uh, the relevant treatment, mm-hmm. whether it's ABA um, or something else. Whereas the black child is more likely to not receive that diagnosis until years down the road, mm-hmm. and instead would receive at the outset a diagnosis of a, a conduct disorder or an emotional behavioral. Um, disturbance issue and 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 that is is really troubling because mm-hmm. autism does um, have specific therapies that are um, targeted for that particular disability and and for a child to um, receive some other form of treatment that's not closely you know tied right. to their disability mm-hmm. um, is really not um, setting that child up for success yeah. at the outset yeah. and yeah. and is um, you know holding holding that child back in comparison to their peers. Um, so it does. It, it, there there are many many barriers that yeah. you know children uh, face, and unfortunately. So I know you know when it comes to um, disparities in just the access to services. Can you talk a little bit about families who English is not their their primary language, and what kind of barriers those can have for a family who's trying to get services for the child yes absolutely and and um uh the research is 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 there but i can also speak from my experience of how um as a parent and then um seeing a family who um, doesn't speak the language and yet is trying to um figure out this system that is uh it's not easy to navigate. There are a lot of there are a lot of timelines. There are a lot of acronyms yes. <laughs> in special education. Um, that is just the legal process alone. And then you also have this clinical aspect of being a parent, of parenting a child with special needs, and trying to understand the nature of the disability, and then coordinating everything together. Um, so it's um, it's to to even 
you know, English speaking families, it's a difficult system mm -hmm. to, um, to navigate. But yes, there are a lot of factors that present um, as barriers to accessing um, special education services for culturally or linguistically diverse families. Um, we've seen that there is a delay in referring English language learners for special education, um, somehow that they needed to be um, fully, I guess, proficient in English language before they could be referred, and, and that's um, a barrier. Sometimes it can be uh, the comfort level with uh, the concept of disability uh, as a whole and, and parents' lack of information about their uh, child's academic progress. Teachers can also be unfamiliar with the, um, the backgrounds that the families are, are coming from. And then there are also different viewpoints um, and expectations for parental involvement with teachers. So in some cultures, um, families may feel that they have to be very deferential to right. um, the educators and the teachers and the um, administrators who are making the decision um, about their child's special needs, whereas um, the way the IDEA is set up, the parent is supposed to be um, perhaps the most um, important member of, of mm -hmm. that team, of that decision-making team. And so what do you think would be some additional barriers that families might face as they're going through this process? Well, I think that... Um, a lack of participation in the in the process. So, for starting from the very beginning, in um, perhaps uh, suspecting that there is a disability, and um, giving consent for the child to be evaluated, um, a parent can make a referral, um, him or herself, but also certain people in the um, parents' lives, like a, a teacher or um, a pediatrician, can also make that referral. Okay. However, the parent has to give consent. Um, so at the outset, it can be a major barrier if there's a lack of communication right. um, between those um, professionals who may be able to give, provide some insight to the family. Um, and also financial resources and the lack of um, a social um, or familial network mm -hmm. um, for, let's say, immigrant families who are new to the country, that it, it is difficult to... Um, to, to be present, to be physically present, if you also have to um, work or you have other children in the household, um, or if you don't understand um, what's being discussed about um, your child. And then, um, so I think it leads to confusion amongst yeah. parents mm -hmm. and, um, and, and also misinformation when, when the parent is not an active participant in the process. And I think this is where a lot of the parent centers can come in to be able to provide, you know, that free support for parents to help them understand the process. And I know if you're interested in finding a parent center in your area, you can go to Parent Center Hub. Just search for it on, on Google and you can find the parent center in your state and you should be able to get some assistance there if you're trying to find out how can you get your child um, evaluated. So I want to kind of segue into the impact of socioeconomic status. What were some of the findings that you got as you were doing your research? Yes, I found that um, so 75% of students who are referred for IEP reevaluation, so they're already um, in the um, special education system, we found that 75% of those students qualify for f the free or reduced price lunch program. So I know that um, it, 
this is looking at uh, national statistics and there were ch recent changes to the free and school um, free and reduced price lunch program in, in um, the city in particular. But in general, it's saying that, um, you know, the vast majority, 75% in the special education system are, are at or within a close range of the federal poverty guidelines. So that is, um, that's also a striking statistic because you wouldn't think that there would be such a disparity when you look at all of the children as a whole, that why would low-income families have more um, uh, a tendency to be uh, classified as having a disability uh, than, than other children. So the research has linked um, lower educational performance among children of immigrants and an increased likelihood of special education um, placement. So there is a correlation there. Um, factors such as limited familiarity with English, um, a lack of community and school ties, like I mentioned earlier, fewer financial resources, lower levels of parental human capital, that ability to, um, the, um, the time and, and, and the resources to actively engage in the special education system, those are um, all impact, I think, that particularly, um, you know, striking statistic. Um, I, I spoke a little bit earlier about access to health care, right. um, mm -hmm. health insurance, and how for really young children from birth, um, at least until they're two, that um, there are supposed to be multiple uh, appointments. It starts out monthly, and, um, and then it becomes a slightly less frequent over time. But at each of those um, appointments uh, with a, a pediatrician, the pediatrician would be checking for um, for milestones, and and that's just one way that um, if it if it is a, a, a if there is a glaring um, delay that it could be missed um, mm -hmm. from from this perspective if if the um, if the family doesn't have access to um, a healthcare provider. So we just know that this all leads to um, a delay in that initial referral right. and also a delay in, in effective treatment. Um, and I just wanted to add that even, I've, I've seen from the legal standpoint that um, even clinicians, um, you know, pediatricians and psychologists and, you know, speech therapists can also um, have trouble identifying exactly what might be the right um, service uh, for a particular child or the right frequency. And so it's so important to start this process mm -hmm. early because, um, you know, then you have the best chance of figuring out what the child needs and, and obtaining that. So you had mentioned a statistic about 75%. Is that for New York City? It, it is actually um, New York City Department of Education, um, an annual report that was issued in 2015. So this is New York, New York City. City. Okay. Um, so, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about stigma. Um, I know stigma is something that we mentioned earlier. I just wanted to just share a little bit about um, how this can manifest in certain racial and ethnic groups. Yes, yes, absolutely. So, um, I, as, as we mentioned at the beginning of this um, broadcast, I, I am a mother of three children, and um, I was faced myself with um, uh, with one of my children of making a, a referral because I did suspect a, um, a developmental delay. And uh, even for myself, I, I'm the 
a daughter of two parents who have doctorate degrees. Uh, I have, um, I'm, I've been a special education attorney for, um, you know, far longer <laughs> than, um, you know, I, I've been a parent. And yet, even for me, I, I felt that there was a stigma. Mm -hmm. I felt that I had to, um, or I found myself for some reason, um, defending my decision to, to do this um, uh, initial developmental assessment. Um, I found myself struggling about, you know, you know, whether other people were right, um, whether this was something that my child would grow out of or um, catch up um, based with, with age and mature, maturity. Um, and so whether I should just, you know, see it, see it through or, or whether I should actually actively um, get services to intervene. And, um, you know, I, I bring it up because I think that the stigma, um, it spans beyond um, economic and, and educational status mm -hmm. and that um, members of my own um, community, I'm, I'm Nigerian-American, um, where, where, where are, are impacted. And, mm -hmm. um, and so what I took away from the experience, and, and I think it did um, lead me to want to do some more research on, right. on, on barriers, uh, is because I, I, I think that the, the decision, that initial decision of whether to um, make a referral, whether it's for early, inter early intervention or, or special education services, um, is one that should be made between um, the parents, um, mm -hmm. whoever the um, the guardians of the children, um, the child is, and um, and and that should be more important than yes. other um, outside influences and and opinions. But I I I, I do understand what um, families can struggle with because the statistics are not great in terms mm -hmm. of the educational outcomes for children that are classified. Um, but we'll, we'll get into that a little <laughs> bit later. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, the stigma thing, I think, is very real. You know, I come, like, my family's from Liberia. My husband's family is um, from the Caribbean. And I remember when we first referred my son for early intervention, my father-in-law saying, um, and, and my mother-in-law, actually, they didn't, well, they didn't understand why we were referring him for speech therapy because my husband didn't speak until he was four. So they thought it would be the same. I, even my son had a preschool teacher who pretty much, she said he was a late bloomer. Um, so a lot of this stuff happens. And I know um, during my time in Liberia, I, I didn't know anyone who had a developmental disability. And I'm sure they were there, but it, it wasn't labeled that way. And so it wasn't something that I was exposed to. It wasn't something that I was familiar with. Um, but the stigma is there. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's a hurdle trying to just kind of work through all the emotions and thoughts that come with having to just navigate this complicated system and parent a child who has um, needs, more, you know, more involved needs. Um, and, you know, we could spend all day... <laughs> Absolutely. Talking about stigma and talking about um, disparities in special education and suspension, um, you know, but as we start to wrap up, I would like us to leave the listeners with some advocacy tips and things that they can do to try to navigate um, these systems and get the most services they can for their children. Yes, sure. I, um, 
I, I feel it's so important to be able to, to take away from this conversation um, the importance of, of being your child's best um, advocate because no one knows, as a parent, no one's going to know your child um, better than you and, 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 and probably no one's going to care about your yeah. child's success as much as, as you will. So I, I am a strong proponent of using the law and using all of these due process rights um, to benefit your child and, and thereby overcoming um, some of those statistics that um, are, are so troubling for, um, for youth in, in certain communities. So um, besides understanding what your rights um, are under the law, um, it's, it's important to know that parents are entitled to an opportunity to meaningful, meaningfully participate in the IEP process. So um, I say you can't challenge what you don't know. It's so important to be active rather than passive. Um, so I say, um, you know, to make yourself and your child available for evaluation appointments, um, to research unfamiliar terms and ask questions, to seek out assistance, um, like Pana mentioned, that there are parent resource centers, there are free and low-cost um, attorneys and, and advocates and, and consultants who can help um, help you better understand the, um, the nuances of your child's special needs and also the IEP. Um, I am a big proponent of um, utilizing the healthcare system as well to kind of create the clearest picture of your child's special needs. So um, there are developmental behavioral pediatricians, there are neuropsychological, neuropsychologists um, who can provide second and third opinions. And then you typically have a right um, to uh, an IEE, an independent educational evaluation, um, <laughs> if you disagree with the one that the school district has conducted. So um, I, 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 am, I know we're running out of time, but I, would, I can't stress enough to maintain an open communication with your child's teachers in the school and, and visit recommended programs. Um, you, can't, um, you don't have to accept what's being offered or recommended, and you do owe it to your child to be um, selective. And just one more point, I know we're running out of time, um, that you, the parents do have um, a lot of rights res with respect to the uh, confidentiality of their child's records. Um, and so parents um, should understand that they have the right to challenge their um, inaccuracies in records, to also um, decline to turn over certain reports um, without written um, consent, written informed consent in most instances. Um, so it, it, it is important for parents to realize that they are a major player in, in this process. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Um, those are some really great um, advocacy tips. And one thing I would say before we leave is, you know, don't accept unwritten promises. Try to get everything in writing as much as possible. If you don't understand something, ask for clarification. Um, and then tap into your parent network because we can learn so much from each other. And um, as we wrap up today, I just want to thank you all for tuning in and listening. We could, like I said before, we can spend all day discussing these topics, but we really hope that you got something out of what we shared today. And thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you, Aroma, for joining me. Thank this you so good. much, Hannah. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye.